Heavenly Father, we are gathered before you in the name of Jesus in the midst of a world that has so much uh, chaos and hardship, things going on now between nations that worry us, that scare us, that break our hearts. We ask that you would graciously and powerfully be at work in our world so that your kingdom comes and your will is done against the notions, against the pride of humanity in our greed or our lust for power. We pray that your kingdom would be at work, that you would help people to hear, to believe, for hearts to be changed. And this morning, Lord, we pray for our own hearts. We present them to you. You know all things. You know what each person is carrying in their heart and mind. We want to lay those things before you. You know what pain or stress, what worry or fear we might be carrying. We offer it to you. You know the things we might be holding on to that aren't good for us, that we need to let go of. Give us strength to let them go. You also know the things that we're desperate for, that we are crying out to you for. Please draw near. Please meet needs this morning. Even in these moments while we're together, we pray that you would bring deliverance and help, that you would unburden every heart and you give us life in your ways. Allow everyone to have a fresh sense of your love, that each one of us could feel embraced by the divine love that gives life, that heals us, that makes us well, that brings calm and peace. Would you do these things as we cry out to you? In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk about um, the idea of salvation as healing. BP mentioned that last week, that that's what I wanted to think about. It's something I've been thinking about for a while, but especially in the last several months. And when BP asked me to fill in for him about a, about a month ago, this was the message that was sort of impressed upon my mind. You know, in the Bible and in church, we talk about salvation a lot. And we sort of assume we know what it means and assume that other people know what it means. But in the Bible, it's such a massive concept, a huge concept, that it requires many images to describe or illustrate what it is that God is doing when He accomplishes salvation, when He gives it to us or provides it for us. Salvation is meant to address every aspect of our existence, every aspect of our life, every situation before God. There's a theologian named Ellen Cherry who once described this very well in one of her books where she says, no one doubts that Christianity offers salvation. The longing to, and I want you to pay attention to each of these words, the longing to be well, whole, elected, that is chosen, repaired, liberated, transformed, released, redeemed, shriven, which means absolved, forgiven, restored, justified, sanctified, glorified, blessed. It's based on the observation that all is not well with us, that is. We want it to be, but cannot make it so. Perhaps cannot imagine what being well would look like. She's right to see that salvation in the, both in the Bible and the way we think about our own need in real life is a big thing that has many ways of talking about it. Look at all of those words she mentions, to be well or whole, repaired, transformed, released, 
absolved, forgiven, and restored, or justified. We want these things because we sense that we don't have them or that there's something wrong. And we find that our self is not sufficient for ourself, that we need something more than ourself to provide these things. I can't just look within and discover that I am justified or sanctified, forgiven or absolved or made well. But salvation in the Bible does address each and every one of those themes. It is how God makes us well in every respect in all of those words. I think there are three sort of key or overarching images for salvation that are used in the Bible. I want to summarize them for you real quick. The first one I'll mention is one that we we probably emphasize most in our own tradition is the notion of salvation as reconciliation. Uh, The notion of salvation as reconciliation focuses on the doctrine of justification or how it is that we are righteous before God. How do we get that status? It assumes a forensic or like a courtroom scenario where we're standing before a judge. And then the Bible is clear and declares to us that it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Or as in Romans 3.28, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So the good news is that God has worked to reconcile us to himself by accomplishing our salvation, or in other words, has accomplished our righteousness, our righteous status, through the person and work of Jesus, and that is given to us freely as a gift. And so when we talk about salvation as reconciliation, we emphasize faith as the main thing, this trust in what God has done for us, what he's provided for us. This model assumes that sin is something that corrupts us, something that makes us guilty before that judge. It assumes that sin causes us to have an unrighteous status that has separated us from God. And so the good news of justification and reconciliation is that God has done something about that situation, done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves so that we could be reconciled and have the status of righteous before God. Another key image of salvation in the Bible is the notion of salvation as liberation. That is rescue, rescue from the powers of sin and death and hell and Satan. Usually when people emphasize this theme, they emphasize proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come. So if reconciliation focuses on justification, liberation focuses on the kingdom of God has come. And one day it will make everything right. It'll make everything just. The emphasis in this liberation model is on the future. So we say it's eschatological. It's like looking to the future that God has promised. We want to experience that here and now as much as possible. And so the emphasis in liberation is on hope. Reconciliation emphasizes faith. Liberation emphasizes hope. In this model, sin is seen as something that oppresses and enslaves So not simply that makes us guilty, but it actually enslaves us, oppresses us. It's something we need to be set free from. And so the work of Jesus is about liberating us from that oppression, from that slavery. You see this so often throughout Paul's works when he talks about being set free from sin. That's both our own sin, which enslaves and oppresses us, and other people's, which might enslave or oppress us. 
So the liberation model is about declaring that Jesus is king and has defeated the powers that enslave and oppress. And one day, that freedom, that righteousness and justice will be fully established. And then lastly, the model I'm focusing on today is salvation as healing. And it's the idea that God is at work to restore what has been broken, to renew the soul or the nature of humanity by renewing us in God's image, which is the image of Christ, not the image of Adam. The emphasis in the healing model is on love. That is to say, it's seen as this is how God is actively loving us in the present, is He is doing a work of healing love within us to restore what's been broken, to bring psychological and moral restoration to us. As Thomas Aquinas once argued, grace both restores and perfects our nature. This model assumes that sin is something not simply that makes us guilty or that oppresses us. Sin is something that wounds us. Sin weakens us. It diminishes our ability and our capacity to love, to feel joy, to feel hope or peace. And therefore, we need not simply to be forgiven. We need to be healed of the wound that sin has left. Salvation in this respect as restoration, it's both an aesthetic understanding of salvation as well as a therapeutic understanding of salvation. Let me explain briefly. By aesthetic, it's, it's getting at that God is taking something that has been broken and putting it back together, or taking something that has become corrupted or marred and re-beautifying it. My father-in-law used to restore old photographs uh, as part of his interest in art. And he could make a photograph that was you know, 50 or 60 years old, that was faded and tattered, look like it was taken yesterday through this restoration work. It's amazing. And God's work of healing is meant, to be sort of, is meant to be transformative to us. It's God's way of re-beautifying us by shaping us into the image of Jesus. He makes us beautiful by making us holy, restoring dignity, and our nature, like a restored painting. It's also a therapeutic understanding of salvation in the ultimate sense of soul repair, that God is interested not simply in giving us a new label, but actually healing what's broken inside of us. It's the theological justification for the work of therapists and counselors and psychologists who are able to apply the gospel to the needs of the mind and the heart, to relationships, because God is at work to rectify those things. We see an image of this notion of Christ's work being a work of healing in the passage from Isaiah chapter 53. This great prophecy of what the Messiah would do and accomplish as the suffering servant. In this passage we read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I need to pause there for just a second. Don't read over that line too fast. If you grew up in church in the Protestant tradition, you probably have a good sense that Jesus carried your sins. But do you also know that he has carried your griefs and sorrows? 
He knows what it's like to feel what you feel. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. I love the way that it says this. It doesn't simply say that we are forgiven, which is simply good news and is said everywhere else all throughout the Bible, but that we are healed. The Apostle Peter, in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, 4, cites this passage and applies it directly to what Jesus accomplished for us, that he's the one who carried our griefs and sorrows, who bore the penalty for our transgressions and iniquities, and who heals us within. This notion of a healer is often, of course, associated with Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, Jesus himself connects his work to that of a physician in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, when he's questioned about why he's hanging out with these sinners, quote-unquote. And uh, Jesus associates their sin with a condition of being sick. And he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That sin isn't simply, I mean, again, not simply something that makes us guilty, but that it's actually made us ill. And we need to be healed from it. There's a connection between forgiveness of sin and the healing of bodies and minds throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus and throughout the history of the church. The church has always had a concern for both sick bodies and minds. That has been a catalyst for the beginning of hospitals and schools, which all find their roots in the church. Everywhere the gospel has gone throughout history, hospitals and schools have followed because we understood there was a connection between the forgiveness God wanted to give us and the healing of bodies and the nurturing of minds. And this is, at least in the last hundred years, also led to uh, counseling centers that are Christian, which focus on the healing of mind and relationships. But that's only been formally so in the, in the last generation. All throughout history, Pastors have understood their work to be that about caring for and curing souls, the care and cure of souls. In the Bible, the words for salvation, the Greek words are soteria, that means salvation, and sozo, which means save. These two words most directly, the, the sense they carry, they're both their connotations and denotations, are something more like victory, rescue, deliverance, being made whole or healed in the ultimate sense. So when you come across the word saved, it's not just talking about, I'm no longer going to hell and I'll get to go to heaven when I die. It's about so much more than that. Not less, but much more. Being made whole in the ultimate sense. In fact, many times when Jesus heals someone, he says that they have been saved. Although the English translations will often make it healed or made well. There's about 30 accounts of Jesus healing someone in some way throughout the Gospels. Grace Mahoney read the passage about the healing of the woman who was bleeding this morning. It's such a powerful picture because Jesus calls attention to this woman after she has been healed. So power's gone out from Jesus such that she is healed of her physical condition. But Jesus goes a step farther. He's actually being touched by lots of people in this crowd. But there's something unique about the way this woman touches him and what her need is. And her need is actually more than just a physical healing. Part of him calling her out 
and drawing the crowd's attention to her is him restoring her dignity and actually restoring her community. Because as a woman who had been now unclean in their sense for a dozen years, socially ostracized, Jesus is saying, you should welcome her back into your community. Welcome her back into your friendships because she's restored. She's healed. I just would like for you to have in your mind a visual image of Jesus the healer. And so I want to show you this this, uh, scene. It's from The Chosen, and it's a scene where Jesus heals the leper. And I think it's a very powerful scene, and I just want you to let it speak to you. It's a beautiful scene. It's always struck me in reading the passage because the man knows that Jesus is able to do this. And he says, if you are willing, and Jesus responds, I am willing. It says something to us about God's heart for us. Sometimes we imagine that God is very reluctant to help us, very reluctant to draw near for whatever reason, and that his sort of default disposition towards us is one of displeasure or annoyance (laughs) or reluctance to help. When we look at Jesus, we see someone who's ready to move forward to move toward us, whose heart is to help, to draw near. I also love how the the TV show here, The Chosen, this part's not in the text, but they get something right. This putting a new tunic on him, it's part of this restoring him physically and socially. That he no longer needs to wear the rags of the leper. He can wear the new garment of one who's been made clean. Often in these passages, there's a connection again between being healed and being saved. In Mark chapter 5, after the woman who had been bleeding has been healed, Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. What it actually says is your faith has saved you in the Greek text. This wellness and being saved go hand in hand. It says go in peace and be whole from your disease. When it says be healed. In Luke chapter 17, after Jesus heals 10 lepers, one comes back and he talks to him and he says, your faith has made you well. Again, it's the word sozo. Your faith has saved you. Salvation's come to you. And it's pictured through this healing. As I was preparing for this, I did some cursory word studies throughout the Bible, just wherever there are passages that say something about being healed or healing about being restored, restoration, salvation, renewal, being made whole. And after four pages of passages in my notes, I thought this is too pervasive of a theme for us to ignore or scan out or not see. It is literally all over the place. Maybe if you're, you do Bible studies during the week, you could take that up this week. Just look up every time the Bible says something about something being restored or renewed or made whole. The salvation of soul, as I said, implies a therapeutic understanding of salvation because it's about the healing and restoration of our psyche. Uh, The word psyche, it's a Greek word that means soul or mind, as in psychology. It's about the inner person. The way the other places in the Bible speak of this Like in Titus chapter 3, it talks about the regeneration of our nature. Or Romans talks about the renewal of the mind. 
2 Corinthians talks about being remade in the image of Christ, who's the image of God. All of this language assumes that our nature has been weakened, wounded. Yes, corrupted. Yes, guilty. But also sick. In need of not just absolution, but repair. Not just a new label, but a new nature. A transformation. And so in this sense, in the ultimate sense, the gospel is therapeutic. Salvation is therapeutic. The Bible is meant to be therapeutic. That is, it's meant to be a means of our nature being healed, of bringing psychological and moral restoration for both individuals, relationships, and communities, and why it's so central to the Christian life. The Bible helps reorder our loves and affections, our desires. It helps reorient the direction of our life and re-aim us toward God and godliness and his mission in the world. God uses a lot of means to mediate that therapy of heart and mind. I mean, thank God for good therapists. We have some in our church for psychologists and counselors and also pastors who, as I said, their job is the care and cure of souls. And even each other, we can share God's word with one another to help strengthen each other, to help us grow new capacities for enjoying God and His truth. We may not all have the training uh, or calling of a doctor, to use a medical analogy, but we all learn, we all can learn CPR. We can all learn how to eat well physically, how to take care of ourselves, and we can share that with each other in the same way we do this spiritually when we share God's Word with one another. Perhaps one of the main things about this model that I don't want you to miss, and this is really the whole burden of this message for me, is that this whole truth is about God's love. That is to say, the healing model is about God actively loving us in the present, that He wants us to experience this liberating, healing love here and now. Certainly, it won't be fully perfected until the resurrection, when Christ returns, but it's active now. The whole work of God is motivated by love. As we learned in John 3.16, I learned this verse before I even knew what any of these words meant. <laughs> it's my parents. I'm learning to talk, and my parents taught me this verse, helped me to memorize it. Uh, I didn't know what begotten meant. You know, I was learning the King James Version, just stringing syllables together. But it's one of those verses that we all know. But it tells us the core truth of our faith. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life here and now. And one of the key confessions of the Christian life or professions is found in 1 John 4.16 where we say, we have come to know and believe the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. We've come to know and believe the love God has for us. Pause for just a second and think, have I, do I know and believe the love God has for me? Let me proclaim it to you this morning that God loves you. He does not simply tolerate you. God is for you and not against you. 
God is at work in your life for redemptive purpose, bringing healing, restoration, strengthening, maturing, and everything that he does. You see, the way we think about God really matters. And many of us too often think that God is rather angry or reluctant, as I said, or that he wants to keep us anxious rather than give us peace. We imagine that God is testing us with his commands. It's too often the case that we imagine that God's commands or Jesus' teachings are something like a tightrope stretched across a canyon. And the whole goal of life is to try to stay on that tightrope. Don't fall off or you plunge to your death in the canyon. The whole thing being set up as a moral test. That is simply not the case. The Bible says that God's commands are given to us as a lamp for the darkness. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. They are gifts of God given to us. They assume we are already in a bad situation. (laughs) We are already in a dark place and we can't see our way forward. And so the commands of God come from his heart of love to say, this way, not that way. Do this, not that. This is the way of life. This is the way of thriving and flourishing. Salvation is not simply about getting our thoughts right or our actions right. God's at work there. But primarily about experiencing the love of God, being healed within so that you can enjoy God again. We have no capacity for faithfulness or truth or wisdom or goodness apart from that. And so God must heal us from within, give us a new capacity to enjoy Him in order to fully thrive, to have new and right desires and thoughts placed in our heart and mind. I just want you to see the goodness of God in this, to feel afresh this morning that that God loves you, that He's with you. He's at work guarding and guiding and repairing and leading and comforting you. This healing model declares to us that the love of God is supposed to feel good. It's supposed to feel pleasurable, salutary. It's supposed to bring joy and peace and calm and healing. Now, it might sound like an odd way to say it or a weird thing to say. Salvation is supposed to feel good as if this were news, but it might strike you as news because often we see that some people think that being loved by God is supposed to feel bad. If it doesn't feel bad, we're not doing it right, that we're not taking it seriously, that we're supposed to just go around always thinking, I'm just a no good, dirty, rotten sinner. I'm stupid because that will somehow magnify the grace of God. But maybe it magnifies the grace of God to receive it and to move forward joyfully and thankfully. Life doesn't always feel good, and even spiritual growth doesn't always feel good. But God's work in our life on the whole is meant to be reparative, redemptive. The call to die to self is not so that you live in a state of dying. It's so that you live The call to lose one's life is for the sake of gaining one's life. God intends 
that the death to self or the repentance for sin would lead to a sense of calm and joy and restitution, rectitude, peace, and strength to move forward. It's one of the main things God wants us to know and experience, but we often forget it or we don't think it's very important when nothing else could be more important than this. It's not just something God wants us to know, it's also what God wants us to show. What I mean by that is when other people encounter us, Jesus' followers, Jesus' people, it ought to be easier for them to believe that God loves them than harder for them to believe it. It ought to be easier for them to believe that God wants to, yes, forgive them, and God wants to, yes, liberate them from their sins, but that also God wants to heal their wounds, that God wants to give them life, that God wants to make them thrive, that God wants to renew their nature. Again, Ellen Cherry, the theologian, has said, God is not only good to us, but good for us like medicine for the soul, like healthy food, but for the soul. God is good for us. He builds up, strengthens us. God's goal is not to tear us down, but to lift us up. I hope in prayer is that this morning we can both receive this love afresh, allow it to have its healing, transformative effect, and become people who are able, strengthened, to reflect that same love to the people around us. Let's pray together. Lord, may, by your grace and power, I pray that every single person here would have a fresh sense of your healing love for them. That they would be able to receive and embrace the grace that you give us and be transformed in love. May each person feel embraced, calmed, strengthened for the next step for the next thing, for the next encounter, or for continuing to persevere in whatever circumstance or relationship. Please bless each one now. Give us eyes to see the work of salvation for all that it's worth in its reconciling, liberating, and healing power. I pray in Jesus' name.